Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, I love to read. Ever since I was a little boy, I would read anything I could get my hands on. My daddy, after my parents were divorced in 1967, bought my brothers and I a set of world book encyclopedias. And I read through those encyclopedias. And then I read through the childcraft books, which were the addendum books that you could read after that. I love to read so much that my grandmother used to say that if you want to punish Walt, you send him away, but you make sure he doesn't have a book with him because I just love to read, always, always have. Did you ever read a book and, and get to the end and think, that's it? That's all? That's how it ends? Where's the rest? Or how about for those, yeah, I realize not everybody's a reader like I am, but, but how about you that, that love films? Did you ever get to the end of a film and it leave you wanting more? You know, if you, if you look at the top of your, of your life notes or, or up here on the screen, under the message title, it says, uh, or above this message title, it's different on your notes, Mark, a story of Jesus, and there's a number in that parenthesis. What's that number? 48. It's 48. After 48 weeks, we're going to get to eight verses today at the end of Mark's gospel where some of you may ask, that's it? That's all? If this is the very cornerstone of Christianity, come on, we, we've walked through 48 weeks of, of studying the story of Jesus and, and we only get eight verses here? You know, we want more. We ask why. And it is today, these eight verses, where, where all of us have to decide. The question has been asked throughout this sermon series. Is he or isn't he? Is this man myth or is he Messiah? If this truly is the Son of God, it is a game changer. Not for your religion, not for your belief system, but for every minute of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year of your life. And for 48 weeks, we've been building up to it, building to it, building to it, the climax of Mark's Jesus story. And finally, we get to it. And I know that some of you are out there thinking, well, well, well wait a minute, we, we covered the climax last week, when you talked about the crucifixion. Um, it, when, well, a lot of people died on a cross. And the cross is important. It is extremely important. I'm not putting down the importance of the cross. But that's not the biggest thing. Because we come to the biggest thing today. And as we, as we pointed out, tens of thousands of people have been killed on a cross. It wasn't just Jesus and those two guys on, on, on his side. That's not the crescendo of the book. You and I are not here because someone died on a cross 2,000 years ago. We could ask which one of the tens of thousands that were killed. Christianity all comes to play in these final eight verses. And if you're like me, I'm, I'm going to admit, I want more than eight verses. We're in Mark chapter 16. We're going to close out this series today. So let's go. Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. 
Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb? So we've got this setting of this scene. It's, it's real early in the morning. This is after the crucifixion. It's after a guy named Joseph of Arimathea has asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate, uh, the, the governor, said, hey, is he dead already? And the guards replied, yes. So Pilate said, okay, you can take the dead body of Jesus. And John's gospel tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, he was a prominent member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin that we've talked about. These guys, these dudes that were, were constantly attacking Jesus, the ones that instigated the killing of Jesus. He was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. And he took the body of Jesus and he put him in his own tomb, assisted by Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night, undercover back in John chapter 3, the one to whom Jesus said, Unless you be born again, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's after the Passover. And you see, during the Passover, Passover would start on Friday evening and it'd go till Saturday evening. And you can't do work on the Passover. So the women could not have gone to the body right after it was buried. They could have gone on Saturday after sundown, but in the darkness, you don't go to the tombs. There's no light to work on. It's just, well, you know, you don't go to the tombs at night, okay? I've seen the movies. You probably have too. So at the first light on Sunday morning, the women head to the tombs with spices. You see, Jewish burial was different from the Egyptian burial, the, the mummification, the embalming thing that, that we're, we're somewhat familiar with. The Jews did not embalm. They didn't mummify. They would simply wrap the body in cloth and they'd put spices on it. And there's no pleasant way of describing it other than that human flesh decays. And so um, it's going to stink. And even if there's a stone over the tomb, there's no such thing as an airtight, perfect seal there. And tombs are going to smell, thus the spices. It's a practical thing of, of honoring and loving the person who is deceased, of, of showing devotion to them. And so Mark tells us of the, the two Marys and Salome going there, knowing that Jesus is dead. And their biggest problem, they all of a sudden remember on the way there, well, you know, wait a minute, there's a big stone in front. Who's going to roll away the stone? We got the spices, but we forgot about the rock. And so in verse 4, it says, But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. You think? It's like, you know, whoa. You know, you go there expecting to anoint a dead body inside a tomb. The stone's rolled away, and there's some dude sitting in there um, in, in, that, in that tomb. Now, I don't want you to think of some big mausoleum. Uh, don't think that they, they opened these great big double doors and they walked into the tomb uh, like the place over here at Forest Lawn Cemetery, okay? It's going to be a little cave cut out of limestone rock in, in the side of the hill probably. And this is what was prevalent in that area. It's going to have a little groove cut in the, in the ground there that the stone could be rolled back and forth uh, over the entrance to the cave. You see, this is a family tomb. As we said, it was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a very prominent, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. This would be like a, having one of our senators or something in Washington, D.C. This would be like, like his or her tomb. And whenever someone from your family dies, you, you roll the stone back, you put the, the body in the tomb, you put spices on it, and then later when someone else dies, you push the bones to the back of the cave, and you do it generation after generation after generation. And as the women got there and they ducked inside, they saw a young man dressed in white, and they were alarmed. He said, don't be alarmed. In other words, don't freak out, ladies. 
You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has arisen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. I want you on your life notes. You should have that half sheet of paper there in your hand. Like a circle and Peter on there. We're going to talk a little bit about that later. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, a lot of your Bibles, uh, I don't want to get sidetracked this, but I have to mention this at this point. A lot of your Bibles, especially if you have an NIV there, it'll, it'll have a little note after it, a little parenthesis, a parenthesis or a bracket, and it'll say that the most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. Now, in your old King James, it was, it was written on the manuscripts they had available at the time during the, the you know, 1611 when it was published, but we found even older manuscripts, more reliable manuscripts since then that don't have verses 9 through 20. So that's why your more modern translations don't put them, don't put them there. And, and, and some, you know, some people don't like this ending of Mark and, and feel that it needed more elaboration. And you know, some people then will say, well, Walt, how can you trust the Bible? And I'm saying, are you kidding me? For a book that is so textually and historically accurate to have a few verses that, that didn't seem to fit, and we found out later that the, that the earliest manuscripts didn't have them, I believe it's ironclad. This doesn't affect me as far as believing the, the veracity, the, the authority of Scripture at all. But Mark ends here. These women go to the tomb. They're worried about the stone. When they get there, the stone's rolled away. They get inside. A young man in white tells them, hey, he's gone. Tell the, go tell Peter and the other guys. Meet him in Galilee. And then the credits start rolling up the screen. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is what I've waited 48 weeks for. I'm like, man, they rushed the ending of this film. There's got to be an epilogue, you know, when they come back with another scene right after, or, or, or you know, the extra scene. Any of you like me, you, you watch during the credits nowadays because they like to put these little Easter eggs at, at the end. There's got to be something else in the middle of the credits. And I think, man, I should have written the end of this. Obviously, someone else did too. This, this should have been the most amazing tale. I mean, this is the era of Greek and Roman mythology that was so prevalent in the first century. And that's all we get. Eight verses. By the way, some women went to the tomb with perfume, but the stone was rolled away. Jesus told them, hey, tell the Peter and the other guys, go meet them in Galilee. And that's it. There is your Christianity. That's what it comes down to. And yet, almost the brilliance of Mark realizing it's just a simple fact. We don't need some legendary tale. We don't need some embellishment here. You're not going to find heaven splitting open. You're not going to find fire falling, falling down. This isn't C Steven Spielberg. You're not going to find thousands of angels coming down and having a little whirlwind, a tornado of angels that pull the body of Jesus out of the tomb and up into, up into the sky. Here's what you are going to find. The stone was rolled away. Not so that Jesus could get out. It's not like this is his kryptonite. You know, like, you know, he can do everything that we've seen in Mark's gospel. When we get to the end of life and he's like, oh man, I didn't think about this. How am I going to get out of here? Uh, hello? Anybody out there? Can I get some help with the rock, please? You know, the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so the women could see in and see that the tomb was empty. It was rolled away for our benefit to see Look, he's not here. 
just like he said, he's alive. End of story. And Mark leaves us. It's everything he had told you in the, all the proof of the past 48 weeks. Is he or isn't he? Who is this Jesus? The most quoted, the most written about figure in all of history, the one that separated B.C. and A.D., the one for whom we just went through this amazing holiday where we celebrate his birth, the one that put Christmas and Easter on our calendar. Who was he? Well, you know, he's the guy that, that died on the cross. But that wasn't it. He's alive. He rose from the dead. And all of Christianity comes down to these eight verses in the resurrection. And it isn't like he didn't warn him, okay? He gave some spoilers. He told him, look at John chapter 2, verses 18 to 21 with me. It says, Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? How do you know Christianity is the right religion? Out of all the religions in the world, how do you know it's Christianity? Out of all the beliefs, all the philosophies, what makes Christianity different? Is is it just one of the many paths to God? What's the sign that this is true? And in verse 19, Jesus answered him. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And if you're going to raise it up in three days, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Here's your sign. Kill me, and I'm going to pull off Easter. No one's ever done that. This is what sets Christianity apart. There's plenty of books of of wisdom. There's plenty of of books of, of good teaching. There's plenty of religions that talk about being kind, being good to one another. There's plenty of wise men. There's been plenty of leaders, but there's only one who's done this. It's why for 48 weeks, he's been stopping the crowd. Three different times that we've seen and noted. He goes, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees. I will allow them to beat me, to mock me, to scourge me, to crucify me. And after three days, I will rise again. And if I can't pull off these eight verses, don't buy it. Don't listen. Don't teach it. It all comes down to the empty tomb. Is he Or isn't he? And Mark gives us these eight verses. The women went expecting that he was dead, expecting a stone to be rolled in place, but the stone was rolled away and the body was not there. And an angel said, it was just like he told you. You can bank on this. Everything in Jerusalem, everything that went down over the last week was exactly the way that he told you it was going to happen. So why are you surprised at this one? The stone was rolled away. So I want us to consider for a few things here. This is the place where you can take out your pen and start filling in some blanks there, keep some notes. I want you to consider some some evidence for the resurrection. You see, if the tomb wasn't empty, if if I can get around the fact that he arose, then, then I don't have to do what he said. He's just a dead man. I can treat my enemies the way I want to treat them, which, trust me, isn't the way that Jesus probably would have treated them. I don't have to be generous if the tomb isn't empty. I don't have to tithe or give. I don't have to treat people the way he wants me to. I can raise my kids any way I want to. I can do whatever I want to. I don't have to live my marriage the way that he said. I, I can spend my money and do my life my way if the tomb isn't empty. All I have to do is get rid of these eight verses because there's, there's plenty of wisdom and, and, and plenty of teaching out there. It's eight verses that set this entire story, set the entire Gospels apart, particularly Mark. And all 48 weeks that we've been journeying through since October of 2021 have been pointing to and building on this. 
First of all, consider this. The certainty of his death. The certainty of his death. There is not a credible scholar, author, Christian or non-Christian in history that says, well, there wasn't a death. Yeah, there's a swoon theory that, that was made, has been made popular by many of books most recent. Well, probably the most popular one is the one that came out in 1965 called The Passover Plot. Um, the swoon theory out there, but it carries no weight. No, no reputable scholar supports it. And the swoon theory contends that, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just passed out. Uh, he just kind of became unconscious. I'm like, really? You know, we look at all of history, especially Roman history. They have a great track record of killing people, especially by crucifixion. You know how many survivors we have of the cross in all of history? Nada. Zero. None. Because Jesus died. Jesus died. Every single person that hung on a cross died, experienced death. You don't survive crucifixion. Rome is incredibly good at what they do. To kill someone is easy. You can just stab them or chop off their head or whatever. But crucifixion was about killing, killing someone in a, in a particular way. It's about how they died. It was, it was publicly, it was on a stake, and usually it was with a crime put on a, on a placard over your head. It was done as the greatest deterrent that Rome could come up with. For hours and hours of agony, we want you to die slowly. Because we want the populace, we want other people to see it. And we want to know that you do what these people did, and you're going to end up like them. It was a way of keeping order within the empire. And I promise you, Rome doesn't let anyone off the cross until they've accomplished their purpose. So first of all, there's, there's a death. And we have, we have five ancient sources outside of the scriptures that tell us that Jesus died. One of them is, is Josephus. He was this Jewish uh, historian who fought against the Romans to begin with, and he traded places, and he crossed over to the Romans, and he ended up living in Rome, living out his life. There's a, he's a famous historian of those times that uh, wrote the, about the history of the Jews. He talks about Jesus' death. There's others like Tacitus and Lucian and, and, and other people. Five different places outside of Scripture talks about Jesus' death. Next, I want you to consider where he was buried. Where he was buried. We already mentioned him, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Where John tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. This Joseph asked Pilate for the body for burial. So how do we know that Jesus' body wasn't there? Well, first of all, if this isn't a true story, these are the worst written books in history. You know, where did the body go once they killed your leader? Well, um, this, this prominent leader of the group that had him killed, you know, he, he put him in his tomb and then he was missing. Well, wait a minute. One of the opponents took the body and, and then, it went, then it went missing? You know, not to mention, it doesn't mention in Mark, but the other gospels tell us about how, how Pilate had the, the tomb sealed, put his uh, seal on it, and then had, had a, a group of Roman soldiers there guarding it. Really? You don't write this if you're going to make up a story about your leader rising from the dead and your guys took him, you don't pick the, an unlikely collaborator like a, like a member of the Sanhedrin. So you're telling me that the Jewish leadership had him crucified and one of these guys took the body. Well, you know, it's just not, bad. It's not good writing, you know, because the, the, the Sanhedrin said, well, we know Joey. Joey didn't, Joey didn't hide the body or take, take the body away. Joseph of Arimathea would have been too prominent a figure to be mentioned at all if the disciples took the body. You know where the body is. It's in Joseph's tomb. See, most, con most convicted criminals, those especially who died of crucifixion, capital offenses, their bodies were removed from the crosses 
You know what was done? They were thrown on the, on the, on the trash heap outside of Jerusalem and burned. You know, that, that, that's, that's, how you, that's how you write a good story. You have Jesus getting up out of the trash and, and walking away from, from that. You know, that's, that's, you know, Steven Spielberg would like that. You don't put him in your opponent's tomb where everyone knows where the body was laid. It'd make a terrible story. Thirdly, the witnesses. Uh, the witnesses that were at the discovery of the empty tomb. And ladies, I ask that you give me a little leeway here. Let me talk about first century Jewish culture, and Roman and Greek culture. These are not the views of Walt. This is what was, okay? But you don't pick women for your first eyewitnesses of an empty tomb. In that culture, they just weren't considered reliable. That's them, not me, okay? <laughs> Josephus, that historian I talked about, Josephus will write again in the first century. He'll, he'll say that women's words were so untrustworthy, they weren't accepted in a court of law in the Jewish culture. Their Talmud, their book of regulations on how we do things, how we live in a Jewish way, says that a woman's word and witness is not to be given weight. Sorry, ladies, that's first century. And this is part of why Christ came, the respect and the equality that he gave women. And that this book, the Bible, does that, that, that we're both, male and female, are created in the image of God. But it wasn't that way just for the Jewish culture. It was that way for the Greek and the Roman world as well, where women's testimony was not accepted. So if you're going to write a book where you need witnesses to a risen Messiah, you picked the wrong witnesses. And Mary and Mary and Salome, Really? Couldn't you come up with, with three different names instead of two that are named the same? <laughs> Fourthly, the opponents couldn't produce the body. We have the opposition's remarks in, in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. The Jewish leadership will say that the disciples stole the body, and if your opposition's response to an empty tomb is that someone stole it, well, they're basically admitting that the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was, in fact, empty. You know, it's like, come on, Rome, come on, Jewish leadership, all you have to do is pull the body out. Show us the body. Show us the proof. And, you know, if, if they could do it, they would say, well, you know, you guys got to stand back. This is going to be a little bit smelly here, but here's the body. Sorry, guys, you're not going to start a story about a risen Savior. We've killed this cult. Here's the body to show, to show it. But they couldn't, they couldn't produce the body. And so what they say, they say, well, the fishermen, the fishermen stole it. And we're going to address that in a moment. It's lastly, number five, the belief of those who followed him. Eleven drastically frightened, scared men turned from running for their lives to becoming the leaders of the early church. Eleven disciples who, who run off through the night. I know there were twelve. You know, one of them committed suicide, okay? Another one came back, Peter, just close enough so that he could, he, he could curse, uh, curse himself. And, you know, these are the guys that turned the world upside down? These are the guys that abandoned their leader, then all of a sudden are speaking boldly in the marketplace there? What got into 11 scared disciples running for their life to make them turn around and be willing to die for their faith? I submit to you, this, this wouldn't have happened unless they had actually seen and walked with the risen Lord. Now, maybe two of the greatest proofs that we really don't talk about much is, is that the leader of the church in Jerusalem in a short order of time was a guy named James. And we're told that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, think with, think with me about that for a moment. How many of you have brothers? Okay, I, I've got two of them, okay? I've got, I've got two brothers. And let me ask you a question. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he is the Son of God? 
I don't know about you, but I don't, can't think of anything my brother. Well, okay, if, if, if he died and rose from, from the dead, then yeah, I might start thinking, might start considering it. So how do you get James, who during these 48 weeks that we've been studying Mark's gospel, we've seen on two different occasions, came with Mary, and uh, Mary and the, and, the, and the boys came, and they tried to you know, take Jesus away, keep him from, from doing this ministry. They thought he, you know, he'd been out in the sun, out the sun too long, that he's crazy. What gets your brother that thinks that you're a loony to, 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 you're telling people 83 times across the Gospels that you're the Son of God. How, what gets your brother to believe that you're the Messiah, that you're the Christ, seeing you alive after he saw you dead? And then there's Paul. Paul, of the author of 13 books in our New Testament, a guy whose job, his mission from the Jewish authorities was to stomp out Christianity and shut down churches by any means necessary. Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, after the cross. And Paul becomes the greatest missionary, the greatest church planner that's ever lived. And he writes more book, he writes more in the, in, the, in the New Testament than anybody else. What turned that guy, a zealous terrorist against the church, into such a great church planner? What takes the scared fishermen who run away from Christianity in the dead of night to come back and, 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 and cause them to lay down their lives for this truth? Well, then there's a conspiracy theory there in that case that, you know, that these fishermen overpowered the Roman guards, okay? The, 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 these fishermen overpowered the Roman guards and, and, and took the body? I don't think so. Others have said, well, it can be explained by mass hallucination. Here's the problem. When you hallucinate, it's your hallucination. You cannot invite people into your hallucination, uh, 500 people see and walk with Jesus, they would have different hallucinations. They wouldn't all have the same, the same story. You can't do that. It's like, it's like your dream. Have you ever tried to invite your spouse into your dream? You wake up and you can't do it. You can't invite someone into your hallucination or your dream. And here's the thing. If all of this is true, if this is what he did for you and for me, then it's got to change every day of my life, not just what I do on Sunday mornings. You see, an empty tomb shows, it proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. 83 times calling himself the Son of Man, 83 times saying, I am the Messiah, spoken about by Daniel in chapter 7. I am the one who comes on the clouds, the Son of God by which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. I do have power and dominion over every nation, over every ethnicity, every, every tribe, over all peoples forever and ever and ever. My dominion, my rule, my authority will never end. I am that guy, he says. 83 times in the Gospels he claims it. Well, how are you going to back that up? Kill me and watch what happens. And if I can't pull off the empty tomb, if I can't pull off Easter, then don't pay any attention to this book. You see, an empty tomb shows that Jesus' death paid our ransom and redeemed us. An empty tomb shows that this is no mere man. Mark starts out his gospel talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. At the end, at the foot of the cross, we pointed out last week, you have, you have a Roman centurion standing there saying, surely this man was the Son of God. He just got his verb tenses wrong. This man is the Son of God. And so this, 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 the empty tomb is a receipt. It's a receipt for the payment that was made for our sins on the cross. You see, anyone can die on a cross. As we've said, many people died on crosses. Anyone can be killed by crucifixion. You can claim to die for anyone. And if that's the payment 
for our sins, and the empty tomb is the receipt for that payment. The empty tomb says that the payment was received by God the Father. You and I needed to be forgiven, and that happened. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back. The empty tomb put the stamp on it because it's true. It's true. It's true. We don't need to fabricate and make up and make, you know, embellish the story. We don't need to add legendary tales to the eight verses because it is just as he said. You see, the empty tomb shows that the question of an afterlife is finally answered. Death has been conquered. There's life after death. Our Creator showed us the way. Death is now simply a curtain that you or I pass through to eternity. What he said three nights earlier in the upper room where he told his disciples, he told Peter, boys, don't fear death. I go and prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there's many dwelling places. If this were not so, I wouldn't be telling you this. Now I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you that, that where I am, you may be also. And one of them said, wait a minute, Lord, we, we, don't, we don't understand. We don't know where you're going. How, how do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The only way you're going to get to God the Father is by me. And if death isn't the end and there's an eternity based on what you do with this, then this refocuses everything about this life that you and I are living now. This life is simply a resume to who I am and the job that I get for eternity. Well, my existence now is just a, a temporary time here on earth. It answers the question once and all, there is something after death. An empty tomb shows us that we have a living God, not a dead one. Don't be alarmed, the angel says in verse 6. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? He was crucified. He's risen. He was dead. He's now alive. And this separates Christianity from any other religion, from any other belief system, from any other philosophy in the world. You know, you can go to Lenin's tomb still in Red Square in Moscow, and you can see Lenin under glass. He's still dead, okay? <laughs> Jesus isn't just a prophet. He wasn't just another religious leader. We have an empty tomb, an empty tomb for which there is no other plausible explanation for what happened, who it happened to, who was involved in the evidence of it, and the lack of evidence for anything else. We have an empty tomb. And it means our salvation is past, present, and future. You're not a Christian and saved simply by what someone did on the cross. That would be a dead Jesus. We don't worship a dead Jesus. We don't sing to a dead Jesus. I don't pray to a dead Jesus. We have a living Jesus. We have a Savior who is alive. And there's a relationship with this, with this living Jesus. It's his righteousness daily. Not my righteousness, his righteousness. It, it's his spirit living in me now. It's him with whom I walk and talk and go about my way. And I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to live up to some ancient text. I'm trying to live up to, not trying to live up to some laws that were given in print. It's his life in me now, which Paul calls the hope of glory. Finally, I want to look at the fact that the empty tomb brings us, he brings us an invitation. The angel in the tomb didn't say much. He just a few verses, a few words. He said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. 
An empty tomb, first of all, brings an invitation to grace. It brings an invitation to grace. Go tell his disciples and Peter. That's why I had you circle in Peter there. Um, you know, go tell all those guys that ran away from him. He, the, go, you know, he's not in the tomb, and you, go, here's where you're going to find him. And whoa, 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 whoa. Make sure, make sure you include Peter in that. You see, Peter's the one guy in the room who's going to say, not me. He's the one guy in the room that's going to say, I blew it. There's no way in the world he wants to see me. I can't, I can't, I can't face him. You know, you don't know what I've done. You know, he knows what I've done, but you don't know what I've done. Peter's the one guy that say, you don't understand my life. You don't, you don't know where I've come from, and, and I don't know what God wants, but it ain't, it ain't me. And the women have to say to him, Pete, you're the only one that he asked for by name. See, Peter knows two chapters ago when Jesus was getting the tar beat out of him, Peter came to the trial and he was recognized as a follower. And in fear, he denied Jesus. And he called curses down, said he had nothing to do with this, this Jesus man. Peter knows that whatever chance you get from God, he's blown it. But he didn't consider this invitation to grace. Go tell the followers that are afraid and running those that rejected Jesus, those that weren't here on this Easter morning. And go tell that one guy in the room that knows it isn't for him, the cross is enough. The cross covers it, and the empty tomb proves that. You know, I don't know who you are or, or, or where you've come from. I don't know what you've done. I don't know how jacked up your life has been, but the cross doesn't care. The cross took care of it, and it takes care of you. What's the worst thing you've ever don't blurt this out. But what's the worst thing you've ever called? What's the worst thing you've ever called anybody? What's what's the worst thing you've ever called yourself? I mean, you don't call yourself the title. You just know it. You live it. You you you've struggled with this in your life because you've heard or or you know that you're a mistake, that 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 you've been rejected, or that you're unlovable, or that you're unpleasable, or that you're undesirable. Why? Because someone tried to love you before, and and look at what happened. Look what what did. Be, Perhaps you've been divorced, or perhaps you were abandoned, either as a child or as an adult. Maybe you've been considered baggage. You see, these are the titles that we carry, and, and I can't outrun them because they're the truth about me. I, I, I know that the, this is true about my, about my life, and I can't deny it because there is some truth in there. But you know what the empty tomb says? The empty tomb says, Walt, that's who you were. Now let me tell you who you are. You're looking for the Jesus that was crucified. This is the same God that has risen, and that's what the empty tomb says. The cross paid for my sin. The empty tomb gives me this life and this, this freedom that says, now you have, a, you have a living Savior. He did this for you. And in spite of who you are, the titles, the labels that people may have stuck on you or that you may have stuck on, your, on yourself, you are loved. You're called a son. You are a daughter. This is an invitation to grace. You can't do that without the resurrection. You can't get over, there's not enough self-help books, so you can't watch enough Dr. Phil. Um, you, you, know, you can't get positive thinking mantras to, to go through life and, and make you forget about all these things. But because of the empty tomb, that is who you were. This is who you is today. That's bad English, you know? It's bad English, but it's good theology, okay? This is who you is today. Go tell my followers who ran away from me. Wait, wait, don't forget Peter. If he doesn't mention you by name, 
You don't think this applies to you. But when he calls you by name, it covers you. You see, the empty tomb brings an invitation to purpose. Go tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. Why? Because you're not done yet. There's still a task to be done. Yeah, your ticket may have been punched, so to say, but there's still a purpose now in your life. Jesus isn't okay with you just knowing the facts. He goes, now what do you want me to do with it? Or what are you going to do with it? You're invited to be part of history. You're invited to be part of his story. You're invited to be part of a movement. You're invited to be part of the greatest movement that ever swept the face of the earth. You're invited to be part of populating the kingdom of God. Yes, you get to go work on yourself first, and actually it's, it's him through the Holy Spirit that's going to be working in you. Paul talks a lot about that in, in, his, in, his, uh, in his epistles. But he's going to work in you, and he's going to work through you. In the midst of that, you've got a part to play. I have a part to play. Now there's a new purpose. An empty tomb then brings us to an invitation to relationship. Not just with a living God, but with other Christians. And this allows me to love you the way that I'm supposed to love you because without Jesus, I wouldn't love you the way I'm supposed to by myself. This allows me to love my spouse and my, my kids the way that I'm supposed to love them because on my own, I really, really can't. This is an invitation to an, to an ongoing relationship. Go and meet the one that's going to walk with you. Then get involved in a community of believers. Life as a Jesus follower is not meant to be lived apart from community. You know, I had a gentleman that died here uh, first year after we were here, and he basically told me he just, all he needed to do was sit on his porch at the end of the street, you know, and, and the, just observe the, the nature and all. That's all he needed. I said, sir, that's not what Christianity is all about. It's about a relationship with God, and it's about a relationship with others. The Bible knows no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Being in community with others, whether it's in the community that we have here on a Sunday morning or the community that you have in a Bible study, a fellowship, a small group, or whatever, a group of friends where you, where you, where you center around the relationship that you share in Christ, you know, that, that, that's where you get your encouragement. That's where you get encouraged. That's where you share things and you do all those one another's that the Bible talks about. Now, you shouldn't only have circles of Christian friends, okay? You need to be out in the highways and byways of life sharing and living this out so that others will be drawn to Jesus. You see, the empty tomb brings an invitation to promises. Go find him in Galilee, just as he said. You can bank on it. He came through with every other promise. He came through after calling every single shot. He had told them, this is what's going to happen when I go to Jerusalem. I told you, so why weren't you there for Easter? You can bank on this God. Mark doesn't need to trump up amazing stories pulling from Greek and Roman mythology. All he needs is these eight verses to close his book, and then the credits can start rolling up the screen. Why does this surprise you? Every other promise has been true. Every other promise he made. And so how do you base your life on promises? Well, you do it with the book of promises, with the scripture. If this was the Messiah, the Son of God, then this cross is for every single one of us. And the empty tomb is for every day that we live after we embrace the cross and embrace Christ's sacrifice for us. It affects your Monday through your Friday and your Saturday. It's not just where you go to church on the weekends. It's an invitation to grace, to relationship, to purpose, 